Welcome to Season 5 of American Political History, Rise of the Metropole, New Amsterdam to New York. The development path of the New Netherlands and the people brought to the colony by the Dutch would shape what was to become New York into a much different colony than the other English colonies. In Boston, you had a group of religious exiles forging a new Israel. In Virginia and Maryland, you had plantation societies that were supposed to be utopias. The Dutch came from a small European country with little excess population and some of the highest standards of living at the time in Europe. The Dutch, even within Europe, commonly relied on immigrant labor to fill their factories. These immigrants came from Eastern Europe and Nordic countries. The New Netherlands would be no different for the Dutch, and from the very start of New Amsterdam, it was a melting pot of cultures and peoples of Europe. The area of Delaware would be first settled by Swedish immigrants, who the Dutch had encouraged to settle since the Swedish ethnic group in specific were known to have the ability to live on unsettled wilderness. The Dutch had even allowed Jews to settle in New York, of course passing laws to bar any Jew from purchasing land, holding public office, joining the militia, and forbidding trade between Indians and Jews, of course. New York was also the first American colony to employ large numbers of African slaves. The Dutch had taken Portuguese slave colonies in Brazil and West Africa, and Dutch slave traders needed somewhere to sell this new commodity. These would be many of the first American slaves who had been shipped from Africa and the Caribbean, who had lived the majority of their lives under the chains and die as slaves on American soil. The problem the Dutch faced with settling these new colonies with almost all immigrants was an issue of loyalty. Once these groups of immigrants arrived in the New Netherlands, they had the skills to easily spread out away from New Amsterdam and make their own settlements with very limited aid or need of anything the New Amsterdam authorities could provide. And the New Netherlands faced a growing spread of settlers from New England south. As New Englanders started establishing settlements further and further into the New Netherlands, eventually settling within the bounds of Dutch territory itself, the Dutch would respond with a misguided show of force. In 1653, they built a set of forts along the border between Dutch and English territory. But these English settlers saw this as a sign of security for their settlements against Indians rather than a deterrent for them not to settle within those areas. The New Englanders were stubborn and independent, eventually making settlements in Gravesend, Brooklyn, and Staten Island across from New Netherlands itself. When Dutch authorities required the English settling within the New Netherlands to swear an oath to the Dutch king and authorities, which they assumed the English settlers would reject, the New Englanders just simply pragmatically accepted this new oath in terms as the obvious thing to do since they were actually in Dutch territory. When the conflict of the Second Anglo-Dutch War came, the Dutch West India Company was looking for a way out of the business of colonialization. They had been four years cutting back sending resources to the fledgling and unprofitable colony in New Netherlands. Unlike the initial English settlements, which was a fracturing of different purposes and cause, the Dutch colonial project was run by a single, monopolistic company, which was finding more profitable ventures in Africa and South America than this New Netherlands colony in America. 
The strength of the English system of settlement of population was starting to show its advantages. The Dutch had simply been interested in outposts. And even though each of the original English colonial companies had all gone bankrupt, their settlers had continued on their own to build societies in larger and larger settlements. The fate of New Netherlands was set in motion when the second most powerful person in England, James, the Duke of York, was planning on abandoning his appearances of Protestantism for his true beliefs in Catholicism. Holding an estate the size of New Netherlands could provide refuge for his English Catholic allies and perhaps himself one day if the political battleground turned against him in London. In March 1664, as war was about to begin, the Duke received from the King, who was his brother, a proprietorship of the territory between the Delaware and Connecticut rivers, all of the New Netherlands. For this gift, he was required to acknowledge the King with a token payment of 40 beaver skins a year. The Duke of York personally paid for the expense of four British warships under the command of Colonel Nichols to sail and capture New Amsterdam. To disguise this move in 1664, before open war, the Duke of York had expressed his public discontent with Boston officials, insinuating and suggesting that this fleet was setting sail for Boston to put it in its place. What made it believable was the Duke of York's feelings about Boston were not a deception, only where the fleet was going. When this expedition arrived near New Amsterdam, it was a complete surprise to the Dutch. The English sent 450 soldiers who seized the ferry at Brooklyn, and a smaller force occupied Staten Island. Both of these settlements were easily occupied because of their heavy English settler population. Stuyvesant, governor of the New Netherlands, was prepared to fight it out to the bitter end. He was a loyal Dutchman, after all. But he had little to work with. Overseeing a resource-starved colony, filled with immigrants and merchants who saw the English occupation as perhaps positive, it would allow them to bypass the Navigation Acts if they were now all considered English subjects. In the whole of New Amsterdam, with a population around 1,500, only 200 men were capable of even fighting, and the recent arrival of 300 slaves meant that the city of New Amsterdam didn't have sufficient food or supplies to last any amount of time in a siege against this English fleet. When the governor was presented with terms of surrender from the English that included preservation of all property if New Amsterdam was to peacefully surrender, the governor at first hid these terms, thinking the population would quickly accept these generous English terms of peace. But word quickly leaked of these terms that the English had offered, and a crowd of workers and merchants gathered outside the governor's estate to petition him to accept it. Stuyvesant, outraged by this protest of his authority, would reject these English terms, making a show of ripping up the letter from Colonel Nichols. The crowd grew too big to suppress in any way, and the crowd would force Governor Stuyvesant to tediously reassemble the letter that he had ripped up from the English, the next day, the Dutch surrendered the town, and with it, control over the whole of New Netherlands. Dutch colors came down, and the English colors were raised over the town. Colonel Nichols, who would change the names of Fort Amsterdam to Fort James, Fort Orange would become known as Albany, and both New Amsterdam and the territory of New Netherlands would become New York, in honor of his proprietor, James, the Duke of York. 
Colonel Nichols would start his leadership over New York by setting up English-style government at local townships, leaving in place almost all property ownership, local customs, and selecting representatives from the locals. In 1665, drafting what would be called the Duke's Laws, which standardized the law of the whole colony. Included in this was the newly established free religion expectation. At this point, any colony which wished to attract New England settlers would have to give them this religious freedom. And it also established religious acceptance for the members of the Dutch Reformed Church, who lived in large numbers within the territory of New York. Also adopted was the reliance on local justices of the peace, which left much of the day-to-day administrative duties of government to local municipalities within the New York colony. This policy of having local municipalities handle the day-to-day governance was accepted by the diverse settlers and settlements which populated the New York colony. Within a couple of years, and no minor accomplishment by Colonel Nichols, he had unified this diverse colony of people who came from different countries, prayed to different gods, spoke different language. It is just simply quite amazing. Virginia required massive wars with the Powhatan that wiped out much of its population to find some sort of unity. New England and the Puritans might have had unity at the beginning, but their rigidness would force the formation of other colonies like Rhode Island and Connecticut. And the Dutch, quite simply, had never accomplished anything like this in the New Netherlands in a span of decades. Colonel Nichols' next issue was that this new charter to the Duke of York had overridden already promised lands to other colonies. The new boundaries cut into Connecticut, and Nichols, with the assistance of John Winthrop Jr., negotiated a compromise between the two colonies' borders. This is almost the exact same border between the two states today. And just in case Colonel Nichols didn't have enough to do while unifying and running one of the largest colonies in the Americas, the Duke of York circled back to the New England issue, and he ordered Colonel Nichols to investigate the New Englanders' bypassing of the Navigation Acts. Although given special authority by the Duke of York, Colonel Nichols would be overwhelmed by the management of the New York colony. He would order his subordinates to investigate New England who would be befuddled and stymied by the New Englanders' ability to cooperate with authorities, yet completely block the ability for investigators to do their jobs. Colonel Nichols' attention would be pulled even more from this investigation in New England by the sudden shift of the Duke himself, who gifted the proprietorship of New Jersey to Lord Barclay, that is, Governor Barclay's brother, and Sir George Carteret. To Nichols' shock, the Duke had just given away most of the valuable lands within the colony for almost nothing. Despite the multitude of demands on Colonel Nichols, New York would quickly become a successful modern English colony. What the Dutch attempted to do in 30 years, Nichols would accomplish in five. In the Third Dutch-Anglo War, the Dutch would briefly retake New York. But at this point, since the people of the colony had quickly preferred English standardized rule, and had mostly been English, when the peace treaty was being negotiated in Europe, the New Netherlands would be exchanged for the Surinsau colony in Guinea, whose slave plantation had a higher value to the West India Company than the troublesome old colony of the New Netherlands. And along with trading the colony away, the Dutch West India Company tossed Governor Stuyvesant aside. Upon his return home, 
he faced political scapegoat treatment in Amsterdam. The company made him into the only excuse why it lost the colony at all, blaming him for the colony's lack of growth compared to other English colonies. In the aftermath, Stuyvesant would return to New York a few years later and live out the rest of his life in anonymity. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating, and share this show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again, and until next time.